0: Hey, Refi Nation. It's Simmer here with John. On today's episode of the Refi Podcast, we've got Nina Simmons. Nina has been a social entrepreneur, um, a climate activist, the founder of Bioneers, and a published author of many books, most recent of which is Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, which looks at the divine, uh, sacred feminine and how that comes up and shows up in leadership. Um, So for today, you know, we'll cover a little bit of Nina's backstory, some of the work that she's done with uh, Bioneers, but we're really going to be able to step into what is the heart of what we feel like is regeneration. What does it look like to really cultivate a practice of love, of doing the inner work and the inner journey to show up for a shifted relationship with one another, with nature and with the environment around us. John, anything else to add?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the core thesis that we carry at Refi DAO is that the highest point of leverage to accelerate impact is through founders and relationships between founders and relationships between founders and investors, relationships between founders and, you know, very skilled technologists. And I think this piece around relationships and heart-centered relationships where you're engaging from the depth of your being because the other person has value or because nature itself has value and it's moving away from a kind of transactional, um, zero-sum dynamic is is really important. And I know personally from my own entrepreneurial journey, it's actually very difficult to cultivate you know a regenerative um, spirit in oneself when you're raising money, when things are not going according to plan, when you're hiring or firing or you know restructuring an organization. It felt like this conversation with Nina was just a walk through a forest, this open invitation to let go, to drop back, and maybe feel something new that some of us might have a, you know, bit of trouble accessing at times. And so I, I think this would probably be a, a sharp contrast to some of the other conversations we've had, but really looking to balance the technical with the more, you know, emotional and create a whole picture of what regenerative finance could look like and start to you know contribute to this movement so um grateful for you introducing Nina and her work to refi simmer and um Before we drop the episode, just want to invite anybody listening who's enjoyed this episode or previous ones, write a quick review, share it with somebody who you might find it useful. We're trying to get the story of regeneration out to the masses, because as we all know, time is running out, but we have an incredible future that we can build together, and the Web3 space has a lot of powerful coordination tools to offer. Um, So here we are, without further ado, uh, introducing an episode with Nina Simmons.
0: what a joy to be here today with both of you john and nina how are you both doing today john
1: man i'm loving it life is good the sun is shining we had a pretty heavy rain over the last couple days and you can tell the world around us is soaking it in i'm grateful to be here and can't wait to hear the journey you've been on nina how are you feeling today
2: I'm also in a really good space today, John. Um, it rained here in the northern New Mexico desert last night, and the smell of the rain in the desert is just uh, totally intoxicating. And my life is very blessed, I've got a lot to be thankful for, so I'm happy to be with you both.
0: Uh, well, it looks like we all got some rain then. I woke up this morning to some rain right on our front too, just you know, some light mist coming in from the ocean. Um, mm. Wow. So here we go. We're coming into today. A lot of love, a lot of gratitude. Um, We've got a lot to cover. So, well, some of the things I think today, at least, that I'd love to sort of cover some ground around is Nina, your own personal story and some of the journey and insights and wisdom that you've had on your own life path. You know, we'd also love to touch on Bioneers, the organization that you founded that's been really deep in this work around, you know, how we create a regenerative future and some of the, questions around climate and the climate emergency that we're all facing. And then also love to touch a little bit on, you know, the second edition of the book you just published around nature, sacred, you know, feminine leadership and culture. Um, and then also, you know, I think, you know, to conclude, we can also bring in some of what we're seeing around possibilities of great in bridging the gap between all the work that's been done already in thinking about the biggest problem spaces and how we address them in climate change, how can we bring Web3 and some of the tools that we're seeing created there to really address, you know, some of the some of what we're seeing there. Um, that's what I'm seeing for today. So how does that feel to both of you?
1: Let's let's go. That sounds great.
0: Rich and like let's a lot. Let's do. Oh, yes. It's <laughs> going to be a beautiful day. OK, Nina. So I'd love to just start with you and maybe just sharing, you know, you having some open space here to just share a little bit about you know your the journey that you've been on and what's led you here you know there's so much i know there's a lot within that but anything that's feeling present for you to just share about your own personal journey you know through pioneers through some of the work that you've done um you know that like is worth just noting noting and highlighting as we come into today
2: okay uh wow well let's see um I grew up in New York City. I'm a city kid, but I realized very early in my life that nature was where I went for solace and nature mm-hmm. was where I went when I really needed comfort. And um, and I first fell in love with theater as a way to change people's consciousness, because when I was in school, there were a lot of radical playwrights who were really pushing the edges and and my idea of a good night at theater was, um, you know, to have people leave talking about the ideas and and really chewing on them over the next mm-hmm. days and taking a look at their unexamined belief systems. And uh, one of my favorite job descriptions I've ever been given was by the the wild ass astrologer, uh, Caroline Casey, who said, looked at my chart and she said, oh, you're a culture doctor. And I loved that. Um, So I've done a lot of work in the arts and in the spiritual realm. And then I moved to New Mexico, met my husband and partner, and began sort of a new career as a social entrepreneur, um, where first I helped him finish a film that was about the politics of alternative cancer therapies. It was way ahead of its time, and it was a brilliant creation. And we managed to get it seen by uh, Congress, which led to the Office of Technology Assessment being founded. And it had the largest viewership on HBO and Cinemax at the time. And, you know, so like that. And then uh, we went to visit um, because he was asked to film a biodiversity garden in New Mexico. And it was being cultivated by a master gardener who had collected seeds from native peoples all over the world and was growing them in close close proximity and gave us a tour through this garden. And uh, I remember that it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And it was sensually just rich with color and smells. And he invited us to taste things And there were things I'd never seen or heard of before. There was like elephant head amaranth, which really looked like these great scarlet plumes reaching into the turquoise sky and sunflowers that must have been eight or nine feet tall and with heads that were 18 inches across. And it felt like they watched us as we walked through the garden, you know, and he would introduce us to every plant. And by their Latin name and by their common name, and I began to realize that this man knew these plants better than most people know their own families. Hmm. And then he explained to us that there was a coming food crisis because of the consolidation of seed companies and the increasing monopolization within the seed business and how that was limiting the biodiversity of available options that nature has to adapt to change. And by the time I walked out of that garden, I felt like the spirit of the natural world tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're working for me now. And I had no background in it. And I left everything that I knew behind and went to work for what became uh, an entrepreneurial startup called Seeds of Change and uh, learned how to do a business plan and uh, how to negotiate seed purchases and and writing catalogs and marketing and the whole nine yards. And eventually um, the board asked me to become president of the company. and, And I said, there was only one caveat, which was that because I had no formal business training, I had to make sure it was okay if anybody asked me to do anything to say, I don't know, and to seek out answers. And they said, that's good, so we did that. Uh, The company was taken over ultimately, but in the meantime, uh, Kenny was doing all this research on bioremediation and biodiversity. And living in the Southwest, he had a great affinity for native peoples. And so uh, he was telling a friend in a hot tub, about all these amazing innovators that he was discovering. And the friend said, why don't you have a conference? And Kenny said, well, I've never been to a conference. It sounds boring. Why would I do that? <laughs> and, the, and the friend said, here's a grant for $10,000. Go have a conference. And Kenny came to me with my theater background. And I, of course, had never been to a conference either. So with Beginner's Mind, we created pioneers. And uh it was very much a co-creation, although it was his thought leadership that really led at the beginning. And I remember sitting there, my first conference, with my mouth hanging open, just stunned at the brilliance of the people we were featuring on the stage. And I thought, well, I want to use my communication skills to support their ideas getting out into the world in a big way. And Bioneers is kind of like a an environmental and social star search. Um, sometimes we feature people that are well-known, but often they're the greatest people you've never heard of. And mm-hmm. they come from all walks of life and all disciplines. And I think pioneers is unusual in a number of ways. For one thing, it really integrates um, the practical and strategic with the spiritual and um, metaphysical, if you will, or the emotional, the inner world. Uh, cultivation that we believe is so necessary in this time. And it also has indigeneity, indigenous wisdom really at its heart. And uh, many of the leaders that we feature at Bioneers uh, have innovations inspired by nature. So I have a deep background. At this point, Bioneers has been going on for 34 years and has a profound archive of amazing media. And um, and so i've learned from uh, thousands of leaders and along the way i had a big discovery that my gender had something to do with my experience of my life journey and when that came up um it was partly elicited by seeing a film online that anyone listening can look up it's called the burning times and it was made in the early 90s by some canadian by a canadian woman filmmaker And it tells the story of the three to 400 year period in European history, which had correlatives all over the world, um, where somewhere between 50,000 and several million women were systematically uh, persecuted and tortured and often burned for the supposed crime of being witches. And what I learned through that film and through my subsequent research was that many of our human civilizations mm, systems were shifted during that time, while seven generations of children watched the women in their lives and their sisters and aunties and grandmothers um, be tortured and burned. And the systems that were shifted were like our health system and our economic system and uh, our land use, our relationship to land. So. Yeah. What I saw, I just had this huge aha, and I realized that uh, all of humanity's greatest challenges that we face can be seen as as a result of the imbalance between the archetypal masculine and the archetypal feminine. And this is not about gender. This is about how we reclaim all of our human capacities to be able to meet the existential challenges that we face today which I know you, you guys are very much about. So, so I've written a couple of books about leadership and about this intersection of nature, culture, and the sacred and, um, and how reclaiming the feminine in all her forms and, and qualities is part of what's necessary to regenerate and heal um, our relationship to the earth, ourselves, and each other
0: wow (laughs) so beautifully shared thank you nina thank you so so much um and it's beautiful too because i think john and i in some in many ways have also i think with the podcast tried to hold a similar there's the internal and the external and so i you know i think just to even play with that a little bit. You know, we, we're we talking about the masculine and the feminine, you know, okay. the energies there. So okay. I think that it could be beautiful maybe to even touch on some of what reclaiming the feminine is and also just sort of, you know, diving deeper. What are some of, you know, as Bioneers has evolved over the past 34 years, what have you seen as a part of that evolution as some more, you know, the inner journey? And what's been unfolding on the external, you know, there's a lot to play with here. So feel free to sort of <laughs> take this as you will, but that, you know, I'd love to explore more, you know, some more of this, there's the inner and these the external, and you've now had all this time to see the evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just, we can take with that, you know, if we want to go specific, we can, you know, let me know, Nina, but yeah, feel free to play with that.
2: Well, it's a giant question, Simmer. So I'm just going to yeah. um, break threads. it down. We'll break it yeah, down. Yeah. yeah, no problem. Um, you know, Carl Jung said very simply that the feminine was the inner and the masculine, the outer. Mm. And I think um we see an emphasis on the masculine in our cultures in many, many ways. Um There's an emphasis on the future and progressing and a tendency to de-emphasize or forget about the past. Mm. Um, there's a tendency to... Um, seek solutions through transactional actions, uh, Mm -hmm. rather than through building relationship and listening as much as we're talking. Um, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to see, uh, winning as a zero sum game, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the, one of the challenges I write about in the book is that, um, I think that part of what has uh, gotten in the way of feminism catching on more widely is that it's often imagined that if women have more power or more agency, men will lose something. And actually, feminism says exactly the opposite. It says, the stronger the feminine, the stronger the women, it benefits everyone and every living thing. And actually lots of research by the UN and and all kinds of global research firms have affirmed that economically, ecologically, you know, the better the education and reproductive rights of women, um, the better the climate impacts. Um, so, you know, there are there are many, many assumptions that I think have been built into our cultural frameworks that we tend not to question and a lot of what i have learned in my own self-cultivation over the years has been the inner work of unpacking those assumptions of making them visible to myself so that i can consciously shed or compost them and consciously strengthen and grow the parts of myself that because of my conditioning often are not as strong or as brave or as outspoken as I'd like to be. If many of us on Earth were to shift some of our attention to inner cultivation and to the, the yeah. capacities we have to choose at every moment how we show up, um, yeah. we would have a very different world. You know, we started pioneers partly in response to James Hansen starting to sound the alarm about climate change in 1989. And um, and so much of what we've been doing is telling stories about climate and about climate solutions Mm. for a long time, Um, which really, when you boil it right down, has to do with our relationship with the living Earth and whether we see the Earth as mm, components to be used or uh, relations to be Uh, related to in a sacred way, in a loving way, in a respectful way, and in a reciprocal way. And I think all of those are are keys probably to how you're thinking about the refi Mm -hmm. movement. Um, And and really shifting our paradigm from a linear paradigm um, Mm -hmm. to a more circular one, uh, Mm -hmm. which is certainly what most indigenous peoples have done. But there's one trend that I really want to point to that I've seen. I mean, in many ways, my greatest hope for our future, and I think this relates to both of your work directly, is the conjoining of movements, because mm. as I in my catbird seat at pioneers, what I see is that, wow, there are a lot of people who are awakening to the injustices that our cultures and our systems have been built upon, and that care a lot about changing them. Um, but they're all operating in factions and silos. And were we able to create the connective tissue among the movements, among the women's movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, and the Red Nation movement and the Poor People's Movement? I mean the capacity we would have to affect change would be ginormous. And so to me, there's, you know, one of the uh, inherited habits that I think Mm -hmm. our culture has implanted within us is based on a scarcity mentality, of course, but it also has a tendency toward binaries and polarization. And right now, there's this terribly destructive trend that I see Throughout progressive movements, where um, because of the combination of scarcity and polarization and binary orientation, there's a lot of shooting across the circle. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, cancel culture and mm-hmm. and much more emphasis on being self-righteous than on creating connection and empathic connection. So that's what I would offer
0: that's so, it, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of really beautiful wisdom, even in that just snippet alone, you know, it, just even to go a little bit deeper on that, what are the ways from your perspective to create bridges and build connective tissue between movements? You know, what are the blocks and how, how do we start to open up and start to create that tissue? You know, even just in this moment between some of the work that we're doing and some of what you're doing, you know, what does that look like?
2: That's such a good question. Um, <clears throat> gosh, Simmer. Well, for one thing, um, we probably need to de jargonize a bit mm-hmm. and create spaces where we can come together and start talking about values and what each of us has to bring to the table and what each of us is looking for, rather than um, imagining we come with the answers. Um, there's that. Um, I think we need to recognize that we're all in a state of trauma on some level. I mean, PTSD has come to be permanent state of trauma, <laughs> and I think that almost regardless of our genetic heritage or our background, um, the last nearly three years has been pretty traumatic. And if you're at all connected sensorially or spiritually. Or empathically with the earth, it's been traumatic just to witness the amount of loss and degradation that's been happening. I mean, I sometimes feel just overwhelmed with grief. And I'm sure many of you too, and those listening, can connect with how much loss we've had on the on the um relational plane, you know, uh parents and loved ones getting sick and and dying. And so I actually think. I actually think humanity needs a huge time out to grieve in order to come and be present um, because our societies don't really know how to create spaces for grieving. And I think, you know, emotions are part of what's been relegated to the quote feminine when actually they're part of what nature has gifted us in order to navigate our way through life. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to reclaim. Uh, how to grieve and healthy anger and all of those things and not relegate them to the feminine or chick flicks um, in a way that degrades them. Um, So I want all of our human capacities back in order to build connective tissue. I also Mm -hmm. think we need to reorient around conflict and recognize Mm -hmm. that conflict is part of every relationship and that every relationship we've all had has had periods of rupture and repair. And and how we choose to relate to the ruptures when they happen is really essential to building the trust that's needed for long-term, enduring relationship. Um, so I think it's all those things. and And I think we need to mm, center compassion and kindness and a certain degree of empathy And recognizing, you know, for me, one of the things I write about is that over the last 10 or 15 years, I've been on a really deep journey around racial equity and justice. And. It's helped me to understand how privilege confers blinders and that for so many years, I knew about environmental justice in my head before I knew about it in my heart and i knew about it in my head you know i understood all of the facts and figures and i i certainly knew which side of the equation i would put my i would put my energy toward but when i had a visceral experience of a woman in a deep immersion training that i was co-hosting um have an asthma attack in the middle of the rural high desert new mexico with no medical aid and no inhaler in sight. And she was somebody I had come to love and admire profoundly. And I went through her asthma attack with her and saw the terror in her eyes and had to mm-hmm. rely on my body's wisdom to respond to her asthma attack. And and uh, thankfully, we got through it. But at the end of it, I sank down to the floor with tears streaming down my face. And I realized that no matter how long I had known in my head, it hadn't permeated my heart before. And this was the first time it had cracked the shell of my privilege. And so I think, you know, experiences like that, that move our understanding from head to heart, um, are a really important part of rebalancing the masculine and feminine, and also reaching across divides.
1: That's so profound because you had a choice in that moment to go there with that person mm-hmm. a lot of people are encountering experiences like this and for whatever reason you know I think we've been trained to kind of cauterize ourselves towards mm-hmm. emotions that feel dangerous and especially as a um, yeah I think in, in some regards the kind of entrepreneurial spirit encourages a bit of Um, numbness to push beyond some of those emotional signals and um, I, I know from my own journey that there's a real work that I need to do to create a more nurturing and open and compassionate place in myself to be able to lead more effectively and connect with people in the space and as you've described move away from a kind of transactional way of interacting to more of a, a relational way of being. I'm, I'm curious if there's any kind of um, specific behaviors or interventions that you've seen effective in your community when, you know, people who may self-identify on the kind of more masculine side of the fence and feel some more of that um, need to transition to a more open, nurturing, feminine spaciousness. Like what are people doing as leaders and what are people doing in organizations to kind of rebalance that and create more regenerative culture in their organizations?
2: What a great question, John. Um, You know, one of my big takeaways from, I, I, I led... I co-led women's retreats for a long, long time. And one of the big takeaways was um, relationship before task. And, you know, what I found was that um, creating a spacious entry point, and even in our organization, I mean, we tend now when we have our weekly meetings to invite a whole person check-in because everyone, you know, whether they're parents or living alone, or everyone has experienced hardships of various kinds. And there is something about hearing um in a vulnerable way that honors confidentiality, but also that honors the particularity of each person. I mean, I'm a great proponent of storytelling to change the world, actually. And I think that, you know, One of my favorite role models in relation to this was a woman who was a labor negotiator, and she told a story about sitting uh, at a table with all of these labor leaders who were all male, all large, and she told the story about how she cared so much about something that had happened that she told the story and wept while she told it. And she didn't apologize for crying, And she, you know, she just honored how deeply she felt about it. And for me, that was modeling a kind of leadership that, you know, this time calls us to be brave and it calls us to take risks. And the kind of fear that you describe around the callousness that we are encouraged to form as entrepreneurs and also as people of privilege, I think it pales in comparison to the existential challenges we face. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's a really good time to be asking ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, there are fears that come up because they truly protect us. And there are fears that come up because they're habitually trained. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important time to discern between those fears when they arise in us.
0: So, so true, you know, and, and, as we think about you know Nina with storytelling and with imagining regenerative systems, you know one of the things you mentioned from pioneers was sort of cultivating these stories across you know these past several decades um, as we think about going ahead, you know what are some of the stories that you've developed around climate that that do resonate you know that do allow for an opening and an awakening you know if you if you have any stories on the on that front to share would love to hear some of them as well
2: well i realize listening to you summer that one of the things i should name about pioneers is that we have very intentionally created a mm-hmm. space where people from very different back backgrounds and disciplines can come together in a place where there is mutuality and respect but mm-hmm. also pluralism mm-hmm. and i think cultivating fields of pluralism is something that actually is a a good answer to John's question as well in that, you know, in every team, in every entrepreneurial group or organization, we have far more diversity than we tend to acknowledge, right? And it's not only age or gender or ethnic diversity, but also You know there are introverts and extroverts, and there are we have all these different ways of processing information, and so um, creating a field where people are invited to express their particularity within a a field that establishes some common ground of values is is what I wanted to suggest. And um, stories, well, you know. One that comes to mind immediately comes from the field of biomimicry, which I imagine you both and many of your listeners are familiar with. But um, Janine Benyus is often considered the godmother of biomimicry. And what she said at Bioneers, which I loved, was that in nature, the places of greatest fertility are the places where two or more ecosystems meet. And so where the river meets the ocean meets the forest, that's where new innovation happens in nature and hybridization and all kinds of evolutionary changes. And she said, because human beings are a subset of nature, um, then the same is true here. So you create a field of innovation and fertility by consciously inviting all the diverse Perspectives and qualities and and natures that exist in the space. You know, with climate change, I honestly I've just joined an advisory council for a group called Daughters for Earth, that was started. I think you may have heard this simmer by a woman named Zainab Salbi, and uh, in partnership. And part of what she realized was that her past. Uh, entrepreneurship involved creating something called Women for Women International. And again, this shows my bias, but what can I do? Um, in Women for Women International, what she realized was that women in conflict zones were carrying much of the brunt of the conflict. They were continuing to keep life happening during war times. They were continuing to heal the wounded and care for the crops and do all the things that kept life together. And yet they were receiving two percent of the funding that was of the philanthropic funding that was going to conflict zones. Well, as she looked into climate change, she had a transformative experience of falling in love with the earth and hearing her heartbeat and deciding she needed to serve this, and realized that the same pattern was true with climate change that You know, from project drawdown to other measures, um, there are many who are, uh, many studies that are revealing now that women have a transformative role to play um, in ameliorating and transforming climate change. And yet, again, it's 2% of the philanthropic funding going to climate justice in the world, 2% of it is going to women led organizations. Well, you know, that's an insane bias and 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 boy, is it self-destructive. So, you know, so that's kind of an interesting story. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we look at with pioneers is solutions that speak from the grassroots to the canopy and recognizing mm-hmm. that the whole system, right, needs to be engaged. And that part of the false separation that has been built into our culture and our societies is to segregate the grassroots and the canopy, or the policymakers, or the engineers, you know. And uh, and so how do we cross-pollinate? I mean, you know, my, my husband, partner, and I were having dinner last night with a man who works for FEMA, who we've known for a long time through Bioneers. And he's He's operating within the system to try to help transform it through an awareness of culture and history and, and permaculture and what the land needs, and not just bringing in the same, same mechanized solutions, because they tend to create more problems. And I have to say, you know, I was just hearing yesterday this guy saying the solution to world hunger is genetically engineered seeds, you know, which of course he's been funding fanatically and genetically engineered seeds bring other problems. So one of the principles that I love that I think probably could apply to your work with refi is, um, is the idea that of solving for pattern and solving for pattern, um, Comes, well, the idea behind it is there are many different solutions to any problem. And some solutions actually make the initial problem worse. And other solutions may respond to the initial problem, but they create other problems. And what you want to find a truly systemic solution is to seek out something that solves for patterns so that when you address the initial problem, it creates cascading solutions. And, and so you have benefits to all these different systems and recognizing that the human and ecological system are one system, of course, and that you can't address one without addressing the other.
1: That's so beautiful. I think that, that last phrase of mm-hmm. you know, the human and the ecological systems are one system, of course. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. much of our world hasn't realized this mm-hmm. yet. We've created separations all along the way that tell us we're separate from nature. And it's, it's a painful thing to see lived out. And yet I also have had those profound experiences of being intimately connected to everything through water, through light, you know, through nature and sound. And yet I find myself (laughs) frustratingly scrubbing ants away at my counter as they're invading (laughs) my kitchen and like not respecting (laughs) life in the smallest forms because, I'm impatient you know and kind of embracing the the fullness of imperfection as a human can sometimes be hard but um i'd love to narrow in on your own personal practice as you know an author a social entrepreneur um, a leader in this place like how do you find wellness in your day-to-day life what are some of the key behaviors that you do the routines the habits that bring that regenerative spirit um, back to you when maybe it's been lost or how do you maintain that
2: well, <clears throat> I'm lucky enough to live at the edge of a national forest, so I walk with my dogs um, through the forest at least once and sometimes twice a day. And and as I walk, and you could do this in any park, um, I pour love through the soles of my feet into the earth because it feels good to me, and I feel like I want to send gratitude and apology. Um To her, and I believe that energetic intention carries um so I do that uh, I love through the pandemic, especially because I've been home so much, I love feeding the birds, and so I have a bird bath that I very fastidiously keep full and clean and and I feed a lot of birds and some squirrels. Um, one of the things I talk about in my book. Was that I had this revelatory learning experience with a Peruvian traditional teacher who uh, led a group of us in a ritual that lasted like six or seven hours. And when it was over, it was about three in the morning. And he said, If you remember only one thing from this, remember this consciousness creates matter, language creates reality ritual creates relationship hmm. and one of the things that has been profound for me is uh, of course sitting meditation and and um, and getting quiet every day because I find that it it deepens my reservoir uh, internally so that I'm not nearly as reactive and I have uh, greater patience and serenity inside, you know, ritual creates relationship. And honestly, repeating those things helps me feel that much of the good fortune I've experienced in my life and in Bioneers work has been due to this land holding us in the way that it has. Wow.
0: Just to, just to reflect back, you know, One more time, it seems that I think the things that you mentioned, just to bring back up, consciousness creates matter, language creates reality. And then what was the third piece, Nina?
2: The third piece is ritual creates relationship. Yeah. And I've I've exercised that one the most in a way. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's not a huge stretch to imagine that when you, as an entrepreneur, when you dream something, you call it into form, and the more clearly you can dream it, right, the more clearly it manifests and and with great purity of intention, um, but ritual creates relationship has been wonderful because really anything that I find that I have a sense of false separation with, I can invent rituals that will help me overcome that sense of false separation. And if I practice them and hold myself accountable to doing them every day, they can be really simple. You know, I find that they change me. So that's another, that's another answer about the self-cultivation piece. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: As we start to draw towards maybe, you know, beginning to sort of orienting towards a close to our time together, Nina, you know, one of the things that we touched on at the beginning, Was some of the, you know, some of the work through Bioneers that you've done to highlight maybe in the cross-pollination, some of the areas that, you know, you really see are either opportunities or places where we can bring maybe new ways of thinking or solutions to the climate emergency at hand.
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been realizing because of having such close proximity to Many native teachers and elders, uh, is that carbon trading is not a solution. Um, not by their estimation, because it's another transactional way of relating to the earth and it doesn't actually shift the system. Um, you know, the other thing that I've been, uh, realizing is that as we transition from fossil fuels, um The mining of minerals to create batteries and computers and all the other things that are going to replace it um, is still resource extraction that is still going to decimate land and water and lifeways. And you know, it's no accident that 80 percent of the world's remaining biodiversity is situated on indigenous lands. And it's no accident that those are the most readily targeted by extractive industries, so I mean, my greatest hope around uh, the climate emergency has to do with i would say um biomimicry, for one thing, because there is some remarkable solutions in biomimicry. There are also some uses of technology that I'm aware of that are that are helping to alert. People when forests are being mowed down, you know, for instance. Um, and I really feel like it's the mobilization of the people power on the planet that's our greatest resource. And, and, uh, and that has to happen through a change of heart, not just through technical solutions. And so I think, I think that leading, you know, If there were one thing that I could wish for from the refi community, it would be to integrate the experience of beloved community and of heart into the solutions you're dreaming up. You know, I have friends who are releasing um, a whole podcast and book called Beloved Economies that's worth taking a look at. I think that the solutions residing in nature surpass our wildest imagining of what's possible. And if we could get out of our uh, hubristic, egoic mindset and actually humble ourselves to the mysteries of nature and ask and listen and study a lot more clearly, we'd be learning a lot more, you know. Turning to nature as mentor and as teacher Instead of as resource, is sort of the, the essential nugget that I would offer.
0: Yeah. There was one of the, you know, there was a passage that I loved in your most recent book, Nina, um, that said, Cultivating our heart's capacity to love is the most powerful, enduring, and regenerative of all the resources here available to help. You know, just that, just that, that deep cultivation internally of our heart's capacity to love. You know, one another, nature, everything that we are creating. Um, what a beautiful gift to to be bringing that in to this space to be building. You know, part of the bridge. It seems like part of the bridge that we're building here is connecting with, being able to connect with the heart. You know, to see not as. Two separate movements or two separate, but like to see as one what is unfolding and what is happening and then move together from the heart.
2: The other thing that I would add, Simmer, is um, (sighs) to turn toward our elders. Mm. And by that, I mean, our elders in the natural world. The natural Mm. world is so much older than we are. We're, you know, pipsqueaks. And also First Nations peoples, science has just learned that mycelium respond to sound. And not only do they respond to sound, but they respond especially to low frequency sound, like the Mm -hmm. sound of a drum. Mm -hmm. So that when First Nations and Indigenous peoples have rituals around the changing of the seasons, and drumming is always an essential part of their rituals, the mycelium are hearing them and responding. So those systems that our elders, the native peoples of this land, knew are not by accident. And they are embodiments of that interconnected way of knowing that I think we all need to be cultivating now. Wow, that
0: is I, so it is such a gift to be here with you, Nina. Thank you, thank you for all of your beautiful wisdom, your shares, the stories. It's 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 uh it's it's healing and medicinal in it even of itself to just be here with you.
2: Thank you, simmer.
0: Yeah, like a good walk in the forest, like a good walk exactly.
2: in the forest, <laughs> like the Japanese people do forest walking, right? Forest bathing, yes. They call yes.
1: it Yoku. Yes. Yeah. A good bath and forest even better. Well, it'd be wonderful, um, after we close to yeah, figure out how we can maybe do some events together online or in person and try and cross pollinate some of the wonderful people you've been in relationship with and um, yeah, continue this conversation. But I'll echo what Simmer said and um, bless you on your way today. Thank you so much, Nina, for your time. I know it means a lot to us both that you've carved it out and prioritized being here. So yeah, I wish you well.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored and uh, humbled to be in this space with you and, and um, you know, to, to trust that whatever I can offer may be of use value um, mm. and really, Send deep, deep thanks for the inquiry that you're all on and um, for working it out together because we have to. We have to. And it's, you know, it's the combination of the past wisdom and the future wisdom coming together. Thanks so much, fellas.
1: Thank you.